Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on all things ophthalmology brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Andrea Tooley. And I'm Dr. Eric Bothan. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in ophthalmology, medicine, and more. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Amir Khan, a cataract surgeon here at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Khan gives us an inside look at some of his administrative roles within the Mayo Clinic, the epic EMR journey he's helped to lead us through, and his experience as a surgeon, leader, and educator. Dr. Amir Khan is a cataract surgeon and comprehensive ophthalmologist here at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Khan is chair of the Enterprise Equipment Committee and Clinical Equipment Subcommittee, as well as vice chair for the Medical Device Oversight Committee. He also serves as one of 12 representatives for the steering committee for EPIC's Kaleidoscope. Dr. Khan is a past Mayo Clinic residency program director and is currently the medical student education director for the ophthalmology department. Welcome, Dr. Khan. Well, thank you, Andrea and Eric. Thanks for uh, having me here today. I'm looking forward to chatting and catching up. It's wonderful. I, uh, you hear this introduction of all these hats. It's actually one of the reasons why I'm excited to spend a little time with you. I think in our current profession, we have so many people that are, I don't know, but burned out or fatigued or they just want to come in and see patients and go home. You have made a career out of wearing a ton of different hats, as just listed in many of these. So to start us off, I just want to get into your experiences, your wisdom, your passion, your, you know, the bruises and bumps that you look back on and wish you wouldn't have picked up that hat. But (laughs) tell us about your leadership journey here at the Mayo Clinic in terms of what roles you've taken on and where you've landed carrying the ones you have now. Okay, yeah, I mean, all these different hats can definitely mess up your hair. So you got to keep that in mind. And really, this all started pretty inauspiciously. I was just asked by someone from one of my equipment committees if I wanted to just be a kind of a newbie member on the committee. And gradually, next thing you know, I'm chair of the committee. I think one of the things is, and you can see I do do a lot of different things, part of it is just showing up. I think that's probably one of the biggest things is showing up and contributing at the meetings. And when people see that you have something to offer, um, then I think that gets valued more. Take us through what is the equipment committee? What does that mean? What do you do for that? Well, I make sure that the oculoplastic and the pediatric ophthalmology yes. services have yes. enough stuff. That's why you're here. All yeah. the stuff. <laughs> so basically, there are two committees that I'm chair of. One uh, for the Midwest here is looking at things that cost more than $100,000 but less than a million dollars, so our committee approves those. And then there's an enterprise committee that encompasses the Midwest here, Florida and Arizona, that approves equipment greater than a million dollars. It's those two committees that I chair from the equipment perspective. This is all surgical equipment? No, this is all equipment. equipment. Impressive. What does that mean? That means that we have an ability to ask for more money than I currently asking right. for. Well, <laughs> exactly. Well, but see, and that's actually part of wearing all these different hats is that I try to keep an, an enterprise institutional sure. view of things. Well, so I can't be blatantly biased for ophthalmology. In fact, for a lot of the ophthalmology equipment that does come through, I do recuse myself from the actual vote. But you kind of have to look at things with a big perspective in order to help retain your credibility. So I'm excited to hear a little bit about that view of an operational enterprise sort of decision-making. But before we get there, you commented about just showing up and being there. I think it's hard these days to know what to sign up for, what to show up and be for, or what to 
stay home and let someone else lead. What is it about these sort of organizational administrative roles do you find personally gratifying that it's rewarding for you to show up? I'll take the electronic health record. I think that is the bane of many people's existence. And I feel that if I'm given an opportunity or given some type of leadership role where I can potentially change and make something better, I feel I should take that. Because I feel like if given the opportunity and I don't take that opportunity, I almost feel like I've lost the right to complain. Mm. I think it's better to be part of the solution than be part of the problem. And I know it's much easier to complain about something than it is to create a solution. But I really feel like if given the opportunity, I should try to jump on that to help. I've appreciated that about you. I've, you know, as a, your colleague, you certainly have a way of saying, let's contribute to the, the problem or let's even understand the problem and then have a voice in, in going forward. It. You brought up Epic, and I think that'll be a subject maybe in another question or yeah, two. Yeah, I want to ask about Epic. <laughs> All right, so going back to your, you commented, the first part of my question was just why or what part of it for you drives the ambition to be there. Can you comment? Because we are in our little world and our specialties trying to make our practice better. What do you think of? What do you prepare for? How much work is it to step into a role where everyone in the room is trying to manage multi-million dollar decisions over an enterprise like Mayo? You know, I think the biggest thing is just to listen first. <laughs> Usually listen first and talk last, I think, goes a long way as well. I think that everybody's got a different perspective, and a lot of these committees have different representations. It's not just physicians. We have nursing, we have IT, we have supply chain. I think what these committees have opened my eyes to is that really the physicians are really a small part of the workforce here at Mayo. And there are a lot of different perspectives and you really have to kind of synthesize and appreciate everyone's input. And no one group is really more valuable than the other. And to really balance this all out, it's really nice and it's very collegial. And I think that particularly in ophthalmology where we are kind of a small department or kind of cloistered in terms of what we do, being involved in these committees really expands my breadth and appreciation for my colleagues here at Mayo. When you're taking on big roles like this, I'd be curious, do you think that your experience just as an MD is helpful from that perspective? Do you feel like there's a role for having an MBA or other types of training or, you know, physicians out trying to think about new roles and new opportunities and ways that they can lean and engage, like you were saying, Eric, do you need more training for that? Like, should we all be getting MBAs or doing other things? No, I think that's a great question. And would an MBA be helpful? It Maybe if, I, if you start doing more of the ledger stuff in terms of the dollars and cents. And I think, you know, for some students particularly out there who are doing dual degree programs, whether it's an MBA or a JD or MPH, I think always trying to think, how is that going to integrate with me? And this is the balance. Part of the value that I bring to these committees is I actually still see patients. So I can put things in clinical perspective. If I were to spend more time doing research and less time seeing patients, I think I'd probably be less valuable for some of these committees because I'd lose some of that clinical perspective. That's a really good point. One of the things I greatly valued and since coming here at Mayo, and just I think it's palpable is the priority that Mayo gives, A, to teamwork, and you've spoken to that. Everybody's had a voice at different levels of the organization and these committees that decide equipment that you're on. 
but also the critical role of being in touch with patient care and physician leadership. I think Mayo does a, a, a special job, a, a more cultured, traditional balance in how they do that, listening to the group and yet also putting a heightened um, benefit or a heightened ear towards the physician's experience. And I, I, can you speak to that in terms of how you think of your roles and Mayo's experience versus what you hear at other institutions and how are the lesson of what we, you, you've understood Mayo's been able to preserve would help others? You know, I think at other institutions, it's a lot more top-down in terms of management where the decision from on top is done and then everybody else has to kind of work to adhere to that decision. Where I feel at Mayo, at least through our committees, kind of the physician administrator partnership that you mentioned, um, you can kind of come up with your own decisions and then things kind of will rise up. So I think that's one of the big differences here. Mm, I like that a lot. Okay, switching gears a little, I want to hear about Epic because Epic affects so many of us really just the EMR in general. If you don't have Epic as your main EMR, if you have another one, it's still a huge part of our life as physicians. And we went through a major change here at Mayo. We had a kind of Mayo-specific EMR for years and years and years. And then just six, seven years ago, we made that switch over to Epic. And it's been a task and love it or hate it, I, you know, it's here to stay. And so you have a huge role with Epic on a national scale, not just the Mayo Epic, but Epic for everybody looking at Kaleidoscope, which is the kind of ophthalmology dashboard, right? So tell us about that because that's so interesting and give us a little kind of behind the scenes of what all goes into the EMR. Well, I'm old enough to say that I was here when we use this other system and it's called paper. Oh, man, um, I love <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, I remember when we went to our first electronic health record here, and just about at every iteration, there's doom and gloom. This is going to force me into retirement. This is going to do this or this. This won't be as good. And everybody always looks wistfully back at what it was mm-hmm. and only sees the good. I, th- I think there's selective recall. Of course. So when I look back at our early iterations of electronic health record, they were fairly rudimentary. Over the years, we did develop a pretty robust health record. So I think that switching to Epic was kind of taking the Band-Aid off. Several years prior to us going to Epic, the institution had looked at trying to put us all in one EHR. What happened was different sites migrated to different EHRs. It's kind of like branches on a tree. The further along, the more time that passed, the branches got further and further apart. At one point, they looked at bringing it all together and thought it was cost prohibitive. Mm. Then they re-looked at it, and then that led to our choosing a vendor for all of the Mayo Health System sites, for all the Mayo sites. So Mayo, Arizona, Mayo, Florida. Rochester, and every site in the Midwest. And I think really that was a good strategic move. I think it really helps unify our practice. It helps us share patients. It helps us share data both clinically and for research. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes us a much more powerful institution. I think really the key is data. And I think that having all this data shared is very important. I agree that there have been pain points. In particular, when we come from a system where we kind of designed it and customized it to how we want it to go to something from a larger vendor 
I think that some of what we're doing right now is just trying to gain some of the functionality back for what we had five years ago. Mm-hmm. So I think that's some of the frustration. I mean, some of the good, though, is, you know, the way we do share the patients, the way that we do have a say in terms of how things are with Epic. I tend to view these things as opportunities. Part of it is we're not going backwards. Mm-hmm. And spending time looking in the rearview mirror isn't a very productive use of time. So I tend to try to look forwards. I've appreciated that we've talked about the maybe the grit or the stamina or the level-headedness that you have in leadership roles. And nothing has displayed that in my career watching you like your epic leadership. <laughs> because if there's anything to have inflamed, grumpy physicians or staff yes. members, it's been certain moments where people are ready to punch their screen. And you've always been able to say, let's learn, let's figure out what would help, let's contribute. And yet you have an ability to stay calm, even though most build requests may take a year to come. You have a long view and it's been much appreciated. Share with us, given your roles now in Epic, because so many places are dealing with medical record systems and they don't always feel like their voice or their requests will ever happen or will ever come and that one of the other criticisms of Epic has been that you get it outside of the box and you got to do it all yourself to make it better. But share because of your vantage point within the enterprise and Mayo's relationship with Epic, what do you see as ongoing work to help physicians, to help ophthalmologists as Epic hopefully will continue to refine their product? Yeah, I think, I think that's a great point that you bring up. And I think one of the things I'm on, as Andrea alluded to, Epic has these um, subspecialty steering boards. So Kaleidoscope is the ophthalmology module. And I'm on the specialty steering board for ophthalmology, and there are 12 of us on that board from across the country. And one of the things that I mentioned, I think really we should have the best of. Whenever Kaleidoscope rolls out, we should have the best of from every institution being rolled out to a new Kaleidoscope customer, not to try to reinvent the wheel. So that's kind of the focus of what we're coming up with right now is trying to figure out what is the best of. Um, And is that receptive that you think will be part of new builds and new new epic rollout? Is that something that as a physician you see as a new culture change or a new product change that Epic will be delivering? I also tend to be an optimist, so mm-hmm. so I'm hopeful. Okay, I'm hopeful. I, I think one of the things is that in my roles here, I've learned that this is a marathon, not a sprint, and it's kind of made me uh, readjust my timeline expectations on when to see things. Yep. You know, we're talking about things. Even if you could take your iPad and you could have the kaleidoscope module open on your iPad, it'd be so much easier to see patients in the hospital. Mm-hmm. You could go room to room and just fill yeah. that out on your iPad. And that's something that should be doable. Okay. So that's just an example of something that we're talking about. Well, like these other roles, I'm glad you, you as a physician is, are there and excited to continue to carry the torch forward to make these changes. Because certainly I do agree there are benefits, even though there are things we grumble about. And uh, appreciate having your, your voice at the table.
Yeah, it's really great. One other hat that you wear is a mentor and medical student educator, resident educator. You've sat on the resident selection committee for many years, and that's a new role for me. And it's so great to have a mentor like you who you've seen residency applications through the years, you have such a good understanding. I mean, really, I think better than anybody in our whole department of what the med students are going through, what the residency application is like, what they're looking for in programs, what the letters of recommendation really mean. You know all the hidden language. You know, really, it, it's awesome the insight that you have. So I'd love to switch gears and talk a little bit about resident education. The application season has been just completely get shook and totally everything's different with the loss of step one scores and changing in clinical grades you know we've talked all about this so let's kind of start with your with your medical student education role you direct our medical students how do you advise them to go about the application process and then and then we'll switch kind of what do you see from the other side of the table when you're reviewing those applications You know, it's interesting from the medical school perspective because the medical school curriculum gets more and more complicated. And as it does, they have to find space in their curriculum to add new topics, science of healthcare delivery or other things. Mm -hmm. And to be honest with you, ophthalmology has been a little picked on (laughs) and some of our time has been decreased in the medical school. But I still really enjoy interacting with the medical students. I'm a male medical school grad. And although it's been a few... I want to say years, but probably more like decades. I still remember sitting in those med student seats. And I remember once I gave a lecture to them and I said, you know, people our age. And then they looked at me like, no, 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 you're your age. We're our age. And then I'm like, okay, I'm getting a little older now. But it's still fun to interact with the medical students because they really have a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, a lot of them are still very undifferentiated. They ask sincere, honest questions. And One of the things I did learn, though, with more internet access is if you don't know, just say you don't know, because someone in the back of the class is really looking up the right answer. (laughs) (laughs) And share with us then for your advice for medical students going through as they're looking at possibilities in ophthalmology or even preparing for the their CV and letters, what, what kind of things do you share with them as you're advising them into their possible careers in ophthalmology? You know, that there are some things that they can control and some things that they can't control. Things they can try to control are their grades, getting involved with research. You alluded to the fact that really the uh, USMLE and the standardized testing is becoming more pass-fail. So other factors such as, let's say, letters of recommendation and more personal interactions might play a bigger role. I tell them that part of doing any type of research There's actually the science of doing the research, but it's also to build a relationship up with a mentor. And that mentor can be an advocate for you, both, you know, in a letter or even with a phone call or other means of communication. So I think that that is going to play probably a bigger role in the process moving forward. Because right now we see schools that are all pass-fail. So then you have a transcript where everybody just has passed. Step one of boards is pass-fail. An inadvertent consequence is going to be that people are going to look at step two just because they want a number. Mm -hmm. Even though if you talk to the people who administer the boards, they'll tell you all it means is the student passed, that there's really no credible way to say that someone with one higher score is better than another student. But part of this is the programs are looking for ways to try to screen people because we get a voluminous amount of applications. And to go through all of them take a lot of time. 
I'm happy to say that we don't have any screening criteria. We could say we won't see anybody unless they have X, Y, or Z. But we don't do that. We actually go through each application. And as more and more people apply to more and more programs, it just makes more work. The other thing is the transcripts tend to be longer now, too, because there's a lot more of a narrative component to dean's letters or medical school performance evaluations than in the past, because I think people looked at more numbers in the past. Mm-hmm. But that makes it harder to review because... As we saw this year, there might be one sentence tucked away in pages and pages that really shows, okay, this person is the real deal, or, okay, there's actually a concern here, there's a red flag. And if you miss that one little sentence that's in the middle of page 73, it makes it very challenging. It does. And I think that's why I think I like our process where we have more than one set of eyes Mm -hmm. looking at the applications because we can each look at things a little bit differently and maybe prioritize things a little differently or catch something just because we're fallible. Oh yeah, absolutely. Having the, the human review, there, just like you said, there's good parts and there's bad parts. I think, like you said, it's, it's definitely daunting on us as a program to have to review so many applications, but it also really affects the applicants because when you're reviewing that many applications, how to decide yes or no on someone becomes very arbitrary right? Like if you have a hundred people that are all really, really similar, how in the world do you decide? And so it's hurting the applicants too. We've talked about signaling and the opportunity for applicants to select a few programs that they want to say, I really like you or, or that. What do you think about signaling? This is official signaling because unofficial signaling has been going on for, for a long time. Unofficial signaling I've seen lead to disappointment. Oftentimes I think there's a misunderstanding of what exactly was meant and what exactly was said. So I've been there on match day where there are some unhappy medical students. To me, signaling again just seems like one more level of politics to play and jump through. Mm -hmm. I'm not overly excited to start getting into another quote-unquote game Mm -hmm. with the application process. I mean, what I try to tell our medical students when they're applying to ophthalmology because I, I think right now we're, we're approaching where the advice students are getting is to apply to multiples of what I would recommend the number of programs they apply to. And I tell our students that with a straight face, you have to be able to look at that interviewer and say why you want to go to that program. Not just because they're an ophthalmology training program, but what is it about that program that makes it appealing to you? And I think that forces people to think a little bit, you know, in terms of what programs they want to apply to. That's really nice advice. I like that a lot. It's challenging, and I so appreciate the hat that you wear there. It's very helpful to have so much insight that you have from both sides, being an advocate for the med students, but then also sitting on the side of residency selection. It's terrific. I just want to say thank you. You've, we started out just talking about all your many hats, and I think we've talked about many of them, even though there are more. <laughs> Is there any lessons along the way that you'd say to others as we're trying to help physicians out there that may be asked to be in a quality role or an administrative role in their private practice, or maybe it's an equipment committee role, but there anything that you'd look back on in your career and say, 
when you think about that, I might walk away, or that might not be the right timing. Any, in, in terms of how busy life can be, and you're a cataract surgeon and a teacher, in addition to all these roles, but any cautions or red flags in the leadership journey and administrative journey you've taken us through? This isn't very scientific, but see how things feel. I think when you first start out in your career, you're probably not as focused on some of these other committee things. Also, I think it's helpful that I've been here a fair amount of time and institutions have a culture. And I think appreciating the culture of the institution can help you with these committees. And I found that just being here as long as I have, I kind of can appreciate how things work. I think also when you first start out, you're kind of getting the nuts and bolts down of, you know, where is the OR? When am I going? What are my dates here? I want to get my surgery numbers up. And, and then that's all very understandable. What you have to realize, though, too, is there's not a wrong time necessarily to jump in on a committee. No one's putting you as the chair of the committee for your first committee assignment. So I think that gives you time to see how the committee functions, see if that committee work interests you. And if it does, then over time, you may advance through that committee leadership structure. And I think at the beginning, kind of if you're not sure what might interest you, throw out a broader net and just see. And I'm probably not the best example of this. However, these don't have to be lifetime appointments. Like most things here at Mayo, there's a typical rotation. And if you find that it's too much or it really doesn't interest you any longer, you can always ask to be off of the committee as well too. So that's the important thing. Things are not set in stone. And we have people come on and off our committee. They may get other tap for other um, responsibilities that makes it so they don't have the time to be on our committees. And that's perfectly understandable. And I think that ebb and flow is really nice because having new people join gives you a different perspective and it adds to the strength of the committee. Well, thank you for sharing with us. And hopefully, you know, the people can take away just a perspective of sort of, number one, the importance of being at the table or showing up, as you said, listening well to people around you, and then just letting your voice be part of the long journey that we're on. And with a little bit of endurance as a marathon, <laughs> you, you really can make a difference, as we appreciate you've done here at Mayo with us. Yeah, thanks so much, Amir. It was great. Well, thank you guys, and uh, now I know who it can tap to help me. <laughs> <laughs> you can find all episodes of the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on our website. Thank you for listening, and we definitely look forward to sharing more 